Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning. So we'll be reading uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 32. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not yet been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God and the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not mean God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything underneath him so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I thought while I fought while these in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I still remember waking up from the surgery. I remember my wife being there and hearing later from the doctor that the surgery was a success. And I remember six weeks later going in to check in and make sure I hadn't ruined anything that they had done. And the doctor said, a few more weeks and you can literally go back to life as it was before. That everything in your back is, is moving along well and you're going to be okay. And there's a very very small chance of recurrence, so don't even worry about it. Just get back to normal. Then it was two years later. I was lying on the floor in my living room on the hardwood. Some time of the night that you normally only see for a bathroom break, and I was so desperately trying to sleep, but I couldn't. That it was back that I was that small percentage that relapsed. I was lying on the floor. I remember I had my iPad in my head and hands, and I was on Netflix. And I'm like, anything, can I find anything to watch to distract myself from this excruciating pain? This pain that's so bad that I just cannot sleep because I cannot take my mind off it. I was so tired. I was so tired of being in pain. I was so tired of not sleeping. I was so tired of seeing doctor after doctor and taking pill after pill and trying method after method with no relief. So tired of waking up in the morning and having to get my wife to dress me because I couldn't even put my pants on by myself. I was so tired of lying on the floor and hearing my two-month-old son cry and not being able to do anything about it. 
I was so tired of having to depend on other people to comfort my only child. I was so tired of having to journal every time I took some medication and try and figure out if the pain had subsided enough to pay off with the side effects. I was tired of it all. I was tired of not being able to be fully in the right mind and even carry on a full conversation with my wife because of the medication that I was on. I was tired of showing up at church with a mat, being pushed in in a wheelchair, and lying at the back like I was some story from the stories of Jesus waiting for him to show up, and him not. I was tired of not being able to live the life that I had planned, of not being the father that I thought I would be, of not being the pastor that I planned to be, of just being broken. I remember even telling my wife, I finally understand. I'm not considering it, but I finally understand why people get to that point in their life where they think it would probably be better to just not live anymore. So that experience as the days turned the weeks and the weeks turned months, I began to realize that as much as physical pain impacts you, there's maybe a pain that's even worse or at least scarier. And it's the pain of what is to come. That it's that moment that you realize that the pain and the suffering and the loss that you experience, however that may be, has the power to change the trajectory of your life and you may never be able to do the things you once did again. Or the places that you thought that you would go, the dreams that you had for the future, the hopes that you had may never be attainable because of what is happening now or what has happened to you last week or what's going on in your life or the loss that you have experienced. Because pain and suffering and loss has this power in it that it doesn't just affect you in the moment, but it seems to go with you wherever you go and it terrifies you of the future because you're not sure where it's going to lead. For some of you, it's a friendship that you lost. And now it's not just the pain of not having that friend and that moment and the tension and the fight that broke out, but now it's the pain of seeing that there's nobody that's going to be there Saturday mornings for coffee. Or maybe it's someone who's not going to be there anymore when you go out to walk your dog. That it's that pain not just of the loss in the moment, but the pain of what it means for the future. Maybe it was a school that you wanted to get into, a program, a degree that you so badly wanted and you planned your whole life around it and you didn't get in, or you didn't pass the test, or you had to drop out like my father did because the family was sick, and someone had to watch the farm, and you just watched the entire trajectory of your life change because of the way that pain and suffering and loss works. Maybe it was a child, a child that you so badly wanted that you just seemed to never be able to have, or a child that you lost along the way, and now that future that you had in mind and that dream, that room that is painted, or that room that you wanted to paint, will never maybe have a life in it. And you grieve. You don't just grieve the physical pain and the emotional pain of the moment, but you grieve the future of what that means for 10, 20, 30 years down the road, that you realize that it is so much bigger in the moment. Maybe it's retirement. You planned on retiring early. You had plans. You were going to visit the grandkids every other weekend, and now things change, and now you're stuck on this side of the country because the market changed or the job changed, and you don't get to retire early anymore. Or maybe it's the fact that you did retire, but the way in which you plan to spend it is different because someone that you love is suffering. 
And now instead of sleeping in and drinking coffee, you're up at early hours of the morning being a caretaker to someone who doesn't even and can't even say thank you. And in the moment, it's terrible. And yet maybe more scary is the future that you can't seem to imagine because it's not what you expected. It's not what you hoped would play out. Maybe it's an affair. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe now you're raising kids on your own and you're trying to do it on a single income. And yeah, it hurt in the moment, but it's been years, and yet you're still seeing the consequences. There's something about pain. There's something about loss. There's something about suffering that has power not just in the moment, but it seems to carry with us. And it seems to influence as we think towards what will this mean for my future because it seems to put road closed signs on dreams that I had, things that I hoped for. And then Christians come along. And they say, well, don't worry. God's doing something good. He's going to work it all out in the end. And you just think to yourself, shut up. That is not helpful. And it just, it's this moment that it just, it's like putting salt on a wound. It's like, that doesn't help me in this moment. That somehow something that's supposed to happen years and years down the road, that somehow God's going to make this all better. It doesn't feel like he's making it better. In fact, it feels like he's making it worse. Because not only is there a road closed sign on the future that I had, the preferred future that I had, but now it seems like I'm heading down roads I never wanted to go down. And now because of this pain and suffering or loss that I'm experiencing, now I'm struggling with mental health. And now I'm struggling with depression. Or now I'm struggling with anxiety. And now I'm trying to pay a counselor. And I don't even have a job because I had lost it because of all this. And how do I pay them? And it's just, it's even worse than I ever thought it would be. Or maybe it's substance abuse. You're just trying to numb the pain. One of the greatest ways in our culture we try and numb pain is with addiction. Maybe substances, alcohol, drugs, pornography, binge-watching TV, anything to take our minds off the pain. You never thought in a million years you'd be that person. And now it just seems like the future you dreamed of is closed, and now you're heading down roads you never wanted to be a part of. The reason we're talking about pain and suffering and loss again is because in this series called Under the Influence, the reality is, is that the pain and suffering and loss that we experience drastically influences our life. And not only does it change the way be, we behave, and it, not only does it change our posture in the moment and the way we look towards the future, but it changes and impacts the way that we engage with God. For some of you, you kind of fit into the category. I'll give you three categories. There's probably way more, but for the sake of time, let me just give you three. You're in the category that just feels like, you know what, I don't know if I can engage with God in this pain. I don't even know if I can, you know, be part of his community. I don't even know if I can be in church because everyone just seems so happy there and everyone's always just brushing it off and the Lord is good and it's going to be great. And you're just in this moment, you're just like, I can't engage with that because I am grieving and it is broken. If that's you today, I just want to say welcome. I'm glad you're here. Second category of people is, is people who I often encounter, especially in church. They say, listen, I believe in God. I want to follow Jesus. But there's something about following Jesus that actually feels like I'm choosing pain, loss, and suffering. It feels like when I follow Jesus wholeheartedly, I'm actually putting up road closed signs on my preferred future. And I'm having to say no to things that I don't want to say no to. And I'm having to experience things that I don't want to experience. I got this text in our Q&A a couple weeks ago at Connection, and I thought this highlighted it perfectly. Pardon the grammar. It's directly from their text, okay? Although, a couple weeks ago, I messed up on the grammar, and nobody called it out. And so I showed up at my church with all these spelling errors, 
and I, they all pointed out, and I'm like, where was Upper Room at that time? I thought we were like family. So next time, if I have something in my teeth or something on my slides, tell me, okay? So that's, you do that, and I'll stop writing my slides at 5 a.m., okay? But here's the text. You, you spoke about overcoming challenges from your family of origin by being born again. What if we don't want to change an area of our life, i.e. sex before marriage, from our family of origin, but we still want a relationship with Jesus? It's a fantastic question. You know what that question is really saying? is I have a preferred future, and I have certain things that I want out of this life, and following Jesus makes it feel like there's a road closed on in that preferred future, and I have to do something or be part of something that I don't want to be a part of. That is such an awesome question. You have no idea how many people have that question, and I'm glad that you're here today. Third category of people are people who are saying, listen, I don't know if I can believe in God, or I'm struggling with belief, and depending on the day you catch me, I'll say I do or I say I don't, but I really struggle with believing in God when there is pain and suffering and loss. And while today is not the message where we're going to unpack that and give categories for all the different arguments about pain and suffering and loving God, uh, I just want to say I'm so glad that you're here. And today is going to be all about when you get to this place of still believing in a God, then this changes the influence that it has on you. But if that's you, feel free to come and talk to me after our gathering today. I'd love to uh, dialogue with you on that. There's some great books I've been reading lately on pain and suffering and God and uh, just just love to dialogue with you more about that. But with that said, today we're going to be looking uh, at two different passages of Scripture, okay? I know that's a lot. Normally I only try and cover one. We're, we're going all out today, so get your notepads out. It's going to be fast. But we're looking at two passages of Scripture because we are acknowledging the fact that pain, suffering, and loss influences us. And we're going to see, is there any way that that influence can be changed? So that's where we're going. If you can turn to the first passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to find that on your device, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. The first passage is all theory. The second passage is narrative, okay? So the first passage is up here. The second passage is here. It's going to be this tension. It's going to be uncomfortable along the way, but just hang with it. I promise it will be worth it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and... Uh, and uh, what we're going to do today is we're actually going to only highlight this entire passage. Chapter 15 has 58 verses. We're not going to go through the whole 58 verses because time just doesn't allow. I know some of you are like, why can't we just cover an entire passage? Why do we always just get the, you know, and hey, if you want to start a petition that says we should preach for three hours every week, I'd sign it. V-Day would probably sign it. I don't know if anybody else would, okay? But today we're just going to highlight a few verses, okay? Now, I realize there's some verses that even got read today that we're not going to cover that are kind of like roadblocks for you. You're like, what was that about? Okay, like the baptizing on behalf of the dead, that's a good one. We're not talking about it today, okay? But let me just see if I can, like, oh, come on, okay? But let me just give you a little bit of context. Pastor VJ said this brilliantly on Hot Seat Sunday. Uh, he, he said, you know, uh, it was a question about things that happened in the Old Testament. He said, listen, if you look at the Old Testament, you'll find story after story after story of people who are involved with multiple wives. And yet, he said, just because the Bible records it doesn't mean the Bible affirms it. In fact, uh, if you look at every one of those occasions, the Bible speaks negatively of it, and you see the negative repercussions of it, okay? So in this passage, it talks about this practice that we think was happening thousands of years ago. Um, even some followers of Jesus maybe were involved in it, which was baptizing people on behalf of people who had already died, which is very strange. Paul doesn't affirm it, never commands it, never tells anyone to do it. He seems to just be highlighting all the different practices that people are involved in because they really do believe there's more to the 60, 70, or 80 years that we are involved in this life. And he's saying, listen, all these things that you're so passionate about because you care about the afterlife, but there is no afterlife, none of that matters anyways. Okay, so hope that helps a little bit, and if you want more, just sign that petition, and then we'll be up here for three hours explaining it all. Okay, so 
With that said, 1 Corinthians 15, let me give you the, the big picture of what it is, okay? Three sections. Here's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. He's saying, Jesus rose from the dead. He has this whole section. He explains Jesus rose from the dead. Here are all the people who saw it. Feel free to talk to them. They're still alive, okay? Jesus rose from the dead. Second section, this is very important, okay, to the people then, to us now. If you've never thought about that, today's going to be hopefully helpful. And then the last one is, death is not the end. The 60, 70, or 80 years that you have in this life are not the end. There is more. So Paul's saying, Jesus rose from the dead. It's important, and there's more to this life. Death is not the end. So we're going to jump right into the middle of the passage and uh, go from there. So verse 14, if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, listen, if this idea of Jesus living and dying and conquering death is not part of your belief system, everything you do is useless. There is no point to it at all. There's no point in me preaching to you. There's no point in you waking up early on a Sunday morning. None of it has any point if Jesus didn't actually uh, live, die, and over, overcome the grave. In fact, he says a bolder statement in verse 19. He says, uh, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Okay, I want you to just pause for a second and just think, who have you pitied in this life? Okay, you're watching on cable TV, you know, dirtiest jobs, and you're like, man, I pity that guy, okay? Paul's like, no, 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 no. If you live some sort of Christian faith, you go to church, you try and follow the rules, but in history, you do not find Jesus who came down to earth, God in the flesh, who lived a life, who died, who rose again. If that doesn't play into your spirituality, if that doesn't play into your faith, your faith is completely worthless. We should pity you. In fact, later on, he says, listen, in fact, if it's not true, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you will die. And what he was saying was, we might as well all just get wasted. If Jesus didn't come, if he didn't die, if he didn't conquer death, there's no point to anything. Let's just go and drink tonight because we don't even know what will happen tomorrow. So let's live it up now because we don't know what the future holds. Paul is saying, listen, it is so, so, so important that you have Jesus at the center of your faith. Now, after saying all that, he says, but, I call this one of the big buts of the Bible because then he just clarifies it so beautifully. He says, but, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And I just, you just sense Paul's excitement as he says this. He has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Paul is saying is, listen, listen, listen. In history, talk to people. They're still around. They saw it. Jesus rose from the dead. It was the first time it happened. And yet, it's not the last. It's the first fruits. That there is more of that to come. To which you'd be like, Paul, what are you talking about? Then it's like Paul just pauses for a second because he realizes this is hard to explain unless you understand the story of human history. And so Paul, as he's writing this, kind of zooms out to a 30,000-foot view of the story of human history, and he begins telling from the beginning of, of history, and he just kind of flies through it really fast in a few verses, but it's so helpful. He says this, For since death came through a man, I'll read it first and then I'll explain it, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He's saying, let's, let's go back right to the creation story, okay? Since the beginning, there was Adam. And Adam, we know, was given free will, and yet he chose to exercise that free will to leverage it for himself instead of God. And because of that, sin entered the world. And so he's saying, listen, sin entered the world at Adam, and it has impacted all of creation. Death came through one man, and people often read that story, and they're like, Adam was told if he ate the fruit, he would die. Adam ate the fruit, he didn't die. 
He didn't die in that moment. But all of a sudden, he was on the trajectory towards death. And not only that, but his whole life was characterized by death. Work, which was supposed to be something beautiful, was now hard. It had thistles. It had death in it. Relationships, which were supposed to be beautiful, now had death in them. Brokenness, pain, relational tension, all of that came when sin entered the world. Paul's saying, listen, listen, when we take a 30,000-foot view, that's where everything went wrong. That's where all brokenness, all pain, it all came through sin. When sin entered the world, all of us took on this trajectory towards death. We experience it every day in our lives. We see it in all the suffering, the pain, and the loss that we have, and then ultimately... We pass away. And then Paul says, but that was not the end. Because even though when you follow human history and you look at the scriptures, you just see that theme over and over and over again, God continually reminded his people that he was going to make it right. And that one day he would send a Messiah, he would save, send a Savior, and in the same way that brokenness came through one man, Jesus comes and changes the entire trajectory of human history. And that's where this line, so, in, so that for as an Adam all die, So in Christ, all will be made alive. That because of what happened 2,000 years ago, Paul would say, listen, listen, listen. It's not just something for the people back then to say, wow, God did this amazing miracle. He came, lived, died, rose again. But that actually was a game changer for history. That all of us, if we chose to accept that gift, could now be made alive as well. And so this is a big picture on all human history. He's like, yes, you know, you live, you experience pain, but in the end, you will one day rise. This is the big picture he says, okay? And then he kind of summarizes it up. He spends the next many, many verses, dozens of verses kind of saying, and here's what resurrection will look like. Here's what new life will look like. And you look all throughout the scriptures and you find these amazing word pictures of what it will be like when we are all risen again in the new kingdom of God. No more pain, no more suffering, no more loss, no more grieving. It's just beautiful. It's everything that you dream of. It's what authors try and write when they're writing utopian novels. It's that that you find is where we're all headed. So Paul says, and because of that, this is how he ends this passage, verse 58. Therefore, therefore, because now we know how it started, where it went in the middle, and where we're all going, that it's not the 60, 70, or 80 years, but much more than that. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. I wish we could just talk to Paul, but like, Paul, what do you mean? He's like, let nothing move you. Not the pain you're experiencing, not the miscarriage that you suffered, not the job loss. Don't let any of that move you, to which you're kind of like, well, of course it's going to move us. And remember, this is the 30,000-foot view. We're going to get to the heart in a moment, okay? He says, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why, Paul? Because you know that the, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul is simply saying, listen, I get that things happen. And later in this passage, he says, listen, I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've you know, been attacked by wild beasts. We don't even really know what that means. But it seemed like he had things that he did not plan for in his 10-year plan in his life going on. That there were many, many road closed signs that seemed to happen to Paul. And he's constantly talking about, I was going to this place, and then that door closed. And yet Paul just kind of seems to keep going with it. And this isn't the way I planned it. But what Paul seems to understand is that he can continue to stand firm and continue the journey of life and not be paralyzed by it. And not continue to try and claw at a door that has been shut. Because he understands that ultimately, ultimately, there is something at the end. That if I could summarize what Paul is saying, it would be this. Our circumstances shape the direction, absolutely. The things you experience, the good, the bad, the pain, the loss, the suffering, that shapes and changes the trajectory of your life all the time. Our circumstances shape the direction, but God picked the destination. That Paul would say, listen, because we are in Christ, 
because we are followers of Jesus, even though the road continues to swerve and sway away from where we thought it would, ultimately, we know how the story ends. And that's why, even in the midst of it, we can stand firm. To which it's like, okay, well, isn't this the, well, God's going to work it all in the end anyway, so don't worry about your suffering. No, 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 no. This is the 30,000-foot view. This is the historical, this is where we're headed, and yet now we're going to zero into to see what do we do in the midst of pain and suffering. And so if you could turn in your Bible to the book of John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 32, we're going to actually look at the story of a man named Lazarus. Now, because we're doing two passages and don't want to go through the whole story, it's quite a long story. Let me just give you the, the spoiler what happens. Okay, so Lazarus dies. Jesus is invited to come, actually, just before Lazarus dies, like, come heal him. He's not doing so well. Jesus seems to take his time, gets there many days late, okay? And so Jesus kind of shows up. People are kind of frustrated, like, where were you? Why, you didn't come? Why didn't you come? And then eventually Jesus is kind of like, hey, can we just move the tombstone? And everyone's like, Jesus, you don't move a tombstone four days after death because if you've watched CSI, it's just it's not pretty, right? And so Jesus is like, move it, you know, and then Lazarus come out, and he kind of like, oh, I don't comes out, it's like walking dead, I don't know what that is. He came out, he was totally normal, right? He was healed. That's the, the spoiler of the story. That's the very quick um, narrative, okay? But let me just zero in to one very interesting part of the story that so often I think we miss. It's fascinating. So Mary was uh, Lazarus's sister. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, so Lazarus has now died, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same Mary that we talked about a few weeks ago who sat at his feet, listened to his teaching while Martha ran all around. She, just, she was never worried about it, and yet she comes, she falls at his feet, she just grabs on, she's like, Lord, if you had been here, my, mother, my brother would not have died. Just pause for a second and think about what she did. Up at the screen. Mary grieved. She's not happy. We see after she wept. She cleaved, she grabbed onto Jesus but she didn't leave. She could have walked up and she's like, listen, I was there for you. You know, people are making fun of you. I was right at your feet. I was listening. I wasn't distracted. And yet when I was in trouble, when I was in pain, where were you? She could have just told him off and left. And yet she drops down, she grabs on and she grieves. Yet she doesn't leave. She stays in the conversation. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, okay, in that moment, we follow the typical Christian logic of what to tell people when they're suffering and when they're grieving. Jesus should have said, guys, don't worry. Stop crying. Wipe your tears. It's all going to work out in the end. God is going to raise them. This life is not all there is. We have hope. It's all going to be okay. Jesus doesn't say that. He could have said, hey, guys, not only is it going to work out in the end, but in about an hour, if you hang around, I'm actually going to raise him from the dead. So stop your crying. You know, get your friends, stand front row right at the tomb. It's not going to smell. It's going to be awesome. Get there quick before all the seats are taken. Doesn't say that. You know what it says? He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied in the shortest verse in Scripture, and yet so powerful. It says, Jesus wept. Wept. Not a tear came down his eye, you know, showing that he's sincere. He wept. 
he broke down and sobbed, just like Mary who had lost his brother. It's the same language that's used to explain what Jesus is doing. He asked the question, it's like, why is he weeping? He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that it turns out that he knows the end of the story. You don't have to be, it's like a horror film and you know the end. It's like, it's not that scary because they're all alive at the end, right? It's like, he knows the end. So why is he crying in this moment? It makes absolutely no sense. I was reading a book a couple weeks ago and this author had this amazing story. I just loved it. And he basically says he's on a plane you know, when the plane kind of starts going down and, you know, you have to change the pressure. So, I don't know, everyone has their own thing. You swallow, you, you like, do that. That's what I do. Anyway, so you have this thing to stop the pain because the pressure builds up. And he talks about how everyone's kind of doing their little routine, you know, chewing gum, whatever it is to try and get rid of the, the pressure that's happening as the cabin lowers. And this baby starts to cry. And the crying gets louder and louder and louder because babies don't know that. They just experience the pain. And they have no idea what's going on. And the baby's just, just wailing. And so finally he turns around and looks and the mom is just holding this wailing baby and the mom is just weeping because she cannot do anything. She doesn't know what to do. She just sees someone that she loves weeping and in that moment she's weeping with the child. Now the author could have said to her, why are you crying? You know we're going to land in like 10 minutes and it's all going to be over. Why are you crying? In that moment she would have said, because I feel her pain. And I can't explain to her and I can't express to her and it's not going to do it any good to tell her that in 10 minutes it's going to be over because in this moment, the pain that she is experiencing is real and that's why the mother was crying. I get this feeling that in that moment, Jesus wasn't weeping because of Lazarus. He was weeping because Mary, her sis, his sister, was broken because she lost her brother and her friends were weeping because they lost a friend. And in that moment, Jesus enters into their pain and he grieves because they grieve because they are his dearly loved children in the midst of pain and brokenness and loss and suffering. He enters right into it and he grieves. He doesn't manufacture it. He doesn't get ready and they say, psych at the end. No, he just grieves because they're grieving. And he enters into their brokenness. Jesus is a purpose, perfect representation of who God is. And he grieves brokenness in the same way that we do. Even though he knows how it will end. When you zoom into how he engages with grief and suffering and loss, he doesn't brush it off. He doesn't brush it away and say, suck it up. It's all going to work out in the end. But he enters into our grief. In fact, God grieves maybe more than most because he knows that suffering is a sign of death and brokenness. And really, when you understand the story of Scripture and who God is, you know that nobody has grieved more than him. Because he understands how broken we are. He understands what happened at the beginning of creation and how that has impacted and broken all of humanity. It's why he came. If it wasn't serious, if it wasn't grieve-worthy, it wouldn't have been Savior-worthy. He wouldn't have sent his son. He would have sent a sorry, get-well card but it was so serious and it was so dear to his heart that he wept and he grieved and he took it seriously and he, enough to send a solution. The first thing we need to know is that we grieve because God grieves. Don't ever sidestep that. Our God grieves because of the brokenness in the world and we enter reality when we grieve. 
We grieve when we cannot find a job because the reality is we were created to work. Yes, sin made work a lot harder, but we were created to work. And when you're stuck at home, unable to find a job, or because of physical disability, you're unable to work, you grieve that, and you grieve that, and you grieve that because maybe more than most, you understand that this is not how we were meant to be, and we grieve. When you experience the pain and loss of the inability to have a child or losing a child on route, you grieve. You grieve that moment because that's not the way that things were supposed to play out. That's not the way that parents were supposed to engage with their kids, and you grieve in that moment. When cancer attacks, when I go for a walk with my dad or when I went for a walk with my dad and he could physically walk and yet we could not carry a conversation, I grieve because that's not the way that fathers are supposed to engage with their children. We grieve in those moments. That when my dad, two weeks after retirement, was diagnosed with cancer, I grieved. Because life was not supposed to end that way. That when we come face to face with a mistake that we made, and it's been 10 years, and it's been 20 years, and we're still suffering the repercussions of that, we grieve. Because we understand that this is not what humanity was meant for. When you're face-to-face with a relationship that has gone wrong, and a divorce, and you're having to drop kids off on the other end of town and trying to make things work on one income, you grieve. Because that's not the humanity that God created. These are the things that we are suffering in the midst of it. And this is why God, who loves us, stepped into our grief and our suffering and ultimately took it all on himself and died in a place. If we do not grieve, we do not really understand why Jesus came and how much we need. And yet we don't stop there. We grieve, but as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Paul could have easily said, this is Paul, the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians. He also says another passage, 1 Thessalonians. He says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. He could have said, we don't grieve at all because we know the end. But he said, no, 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 no. We still grieve. Our grieving just looks different because we grieve genuinely. In fact, maybe we grieve more than most because we understand the perfect picture that we are not and the perfect experience that we did not get but we don't allow it to paralyze our life. We don't allow it to kill us because we have hope. That somehow, even in the midst of the circumstances and all the little losses, that somehow it seems like we're going way off course from where we thought we'd go, where our parents thought we'd go, where our professors thought we'd go, that somehow God still has hope in the end that he can work through that grief and that loss. And some of us may have the experiences of seeing the way that God used it in this life, and many of us may not. but we don't allow it to paralyze us. We don't allow it to hang over us and create fear in us that somehow we missed the one opportunity we had. We grieve, absolutely, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. What does that mean for the three categories of people? For those of us who are followers of Jesus, it means we don't have to hide our grief anymore, but we can actually be real that we can stand face-to-face with the things that we are going through and actually genuinely grieve the losses and not feel like we need to just paint them over with a God's doing everything. It's okay. It's all going to be fine. For those of us who feel like following Jesus has cost us things, or if we followed Jesus, it would cost us things. That example, the person just felt like, if I go down that road, I'm going to have to say no to things I don't want to say no to. Can I just pause and say, think of the story. 
There's a reason that Paul emphasized this to people who were suffering. He wanted them to understand what Jesus did on the cross. If you question God and say, I want to follow you, but it's going to cost me something, you misunderstand Jesus and his mode of operation. He came and gave his life to take away pain and suffering and loss. And when you look at him and say, I don't know if I can trust you because it seems like you're going to take me to places to suffer, you totally misunderstand the sacrifice that he made. It is so, so, so important for us to remember this is why he came. Is there going to be grief and loss and suffering and following? Of course. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. But we do not question his ultimate motive because he is the only God who stepped into our world and took all the pain and suffering and loss on himself so that ultimately we would be made alive again and free from it all. And lastly, if you're in that category, you're just struggling with belief because you can't justify a good God and suffering, this does not put a bow on anything. I'm going to be honest about that. Living in this tension of grief and and grieving and cleaving doesn't make everything okay. It's not going to make your life easy. It's not going to make everything happy. But what are the alternatives? Not believing in God. It doesn't take away pain and suffering. It just takes one more person to blame, to take the blame away. What about Eastern religions? Well, they just say that we just, a lot of them say, we just need to detach ourselves. We just need to love less. We just le- need to be less passionate about the relationships that we're in and the things that we want, and that would go completely against what God created this world to be. The other ones that say, this is just a result, this is karma of the things that you've done in your life. Is that a more comforting thought than a God who enters into our world and grieves at the things that we grieve at and then ultimately gives his life so long-term we will not grieve anymore? Here's the bottom line. Jesus' followers grieve and cleave. We grieve the brokenness, we grieve the pain, we grieve the results of sin, and we do it authentically because it tells us the real state, it brings us into reality, the real state of our world. But we don't stop there. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. Then we cleave to the only one who entered our world, suffered among us, and ultimately gave his life. We grieve and we cleave. What does that mean for us? Here's maybe two very simple applications. See, this is a tension, grieving and cleaving. There's no quick solution. This is the way you do it, and this is the way you do it. It's this tension to manage in between, grieving and cleaving. And so many of us, we've been grieving for so long, and we actually need to start cleaving. We've allowed this cloud of pain that happened 20, 30 years ago to continue to be with us, and we're still grieving it. We're grieving a mistake we made, or we're grieving something that we buried below us, and yet it makes us angry, and it makes us emotional every time it comes up. And you've been grieving and grieving and grieving, and you have yet to bring God into the equation and allow hope to speak into that grieving. That may be your next step. Others of you, you need to grieve because you've only been cleaving. That in the midst of all the pain and suffering, you grew up in a church, you grew up in a family, it's just like, no, no, we don't complain and we don't cry and we don't experience pain because we have hope in the end. And you weren't allowed to grieve at all and so you've only held on to Jesus and said, it's okay. Jesus is going to make it all better. I know I shouldn't complain because it's not that bad because Jesus is going to make it all better. And yet you never grieved and you've manufactured a relationship with Jesus. But when you actually grieve, when you actually grieve the losses and the pains and the experience and the suffering that you've gone through, when you grieve the closed signs on the trajectory that you thought your life would go, then all of a sudden you understand why Jesus came and died. And then when you cleave to him, it's genuine because you understand how loving a God he is. 
grieving and grieving. It's this tension that we manage, not because it makes us all better, not because it puts a bow on it, but because there's really no other option. That's why today is such a perfect day to have communion. And so I want to invite Tony and the elders to come forward, and Tony's going to explain it. What a great day to be reminded and brought back to the foot of the cross and the empty grave. Before Tony comes up and just gives us some closing announcements, just want to leave you with a benediction. If you're new, benediction is two words, benedicte, speak good words. And uh, today I just want to leave you with this. It's a blessing of the community to come that you would actually embody this, that you would become a community that grieves and cleaves, that when someone comes into this place and say they understand my pain and they understand it somehow more than most, and yet they don't just stay there but they cleave to one who maybe I've never heard of, but I want to know more about because it seems to transform them. May you be people in a community that grieves and cleaves. Tony.